Good morning. Rainy Sunday morning. Hard for anyone to get out of bed. I love rainy mornings. I don't know why. You don't get enough of them. Um, All right, we're returning to our series in Mark. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Mark 3. If you're visiting with us today and you don't have a Bible, we have ushers in the back. Jason, our handsome usher, has multiple Bibles in his hands. Raise your hand and he'll bring you one. Um, if, if you want to keep it, you can just keep it and take it home. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to do that. Um, we'd love for everyone to actually be looking at God's Word this morning. We're going to be looking at just a couple of passages, but fairly carefully. We'll pick back up in Mark right where we left off before we did our Advent series. And then last week we did kind of a first of the year uh, sermon from Eric. And so we will pick up at Mark 3, verse 20 through 29. I'm sorry, through 30. Um, And then we will uh, pray. I'm going to read this, then we'll pray, and then we'll jump right in. So hopefully we're all looking at it. Mark 3, starting at verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house." Surely I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Let's pray, please. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, help us, be with us. Open our eyes to the truth that you want us to learn here. But God, we, we pray that the Spirit will be active in our presence, both individually and corporately, to do more than just merely help us to understand the truth of this passage, but to actually love it and to seek to follow it and seek to love it and to place our trust in you through your word. We need the Spirit's help to illuminate this passage to us. Um, I pray that he will be, and we can trust that he will be, at work doing that even now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, if you're like me, as we read through that verse, one particular verse jumped out at you. Which one was it? There's one verse that just kind of packs a lot of punch, a lot of questions in it. What is it? Everyone's grinning. No one wants to say it out loud. 29, 29. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So I took this sermon date based on date alone, and then only after the fact realized that I had been chosen to do the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit passage. So it's too late now. I guess what Kenny's going next week. So one of my strategies could be to run out of time and leave it for Kenny. So I might do that, um, but I think I'll try to get through it. Um, but I, I considered that. I thought that's an option for me. It's just, oh, I just didn't quite get there. I got to 27 and 28, but I couldn't get to 29. But I think we'll get there. We're all interested in what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's just questions that come about that we're thinking about. In fact, even people that aren't Christians are familiar with this idea and are interested in it. Um, 
I, for some reason, stumbled across this atheist website a couple of years ago. Um, the website's actually been taken down now, but there's still the Facebook page. It's called Eternal Earthbound Pets. It was actually an atheist business. And let me tell you about this a little bit, because I actually think this is, I actually had an email exchange with it. I think this is quite witty and quite interesting. It was a group of atheists, led by one atheist, that knew that Christians loved their pets. And their goal and their project was, you pay us a monthly service that when you get raptured, we will come and take care of your pets for you. I'm not joking. Actually, look at the company overview. The USA's only legit post-rapture pet rescue business. Written up on Business Week and on virtually every radio station and blog on the planet, we have over 250 paying clients under contract, covering 26 states with over 40 pet rescuing atheists. I thought it was one of the funniest ideas I had heard, so I couldn't, I had to email him. I had to know who this person was, and we had a small exchange. We haven't had one since. On the Q&A of the website, that's what I hope to find. Now, since then, um, somebody's wanted them to pay some taxes on this money they've made, and so they've shut down the website and shut down the business and claimed it was all a hoax. But I think that he told me in a personal email that they actually had like somewhere 15 to 20 paying customers at the time. So we Christians love our pets, don't we? So uh, I think he was telling me the truth there, but he shut the website down now. But on the website, it was so great. There was a question and answer session. A Q&A, commonly asked questions. And one of the commonly asked questions is, how can you guarantee me that one of my atheist, pet rescued atheists won't actually be raptured with the rest of us, right? To which his response was, they've all blasphemed the Holy Spirit. They'll be here, right? That's kind of funny, kind of not funny, kind of sad, but it's certainly an atheist who knows his Bible, right? An entrepreneur who has this great idea, but he says, I'm going to guarantee you that we will be here. How? We have all committed this sin. So rest assured your pets are safe, right? That was kind of the, that was the idea of the mindset. So we're all interested in this passage and what it means. And the kinds of questions that we have going into that particular verse 29 is, what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Is there really a sin that can't be forgiven? Doesn't that seem counterintuitive to the gospel, right? That there's a sin that cannot be forgiven? And what if I think I've committed myself? What if you think you've committed? What do we do? How do we walk out of that slough of despond if we feel like that's actually something that we've done ourselves? So we hopefully will get to those unless I decide to leave them for Kenny, but I think I'll try to do them. But first, I want to jump and actually look at the whole passage. I think we'd be doing a disservice to this passage if I just did nothing but preach one verse. Don't you agree? I mean, there's some reason that's here. There's some reason there's context here. There's some reason there's a story and a narrative that Mark's given it to us. And so I think that we don't want to just pull out one verse and talk about it the whole time, although it might be the verse that has the most questions that we need to tackle. So hopefully we'll have enough time to do that. But let's first take the whole passage. And the passage, the way it's been given to us, actually is organized by three false statements about Jesus. Did you pick up on them? Three false statements, things that people are saying about Jesus that are false. The very first one in verse 21, for example, is he's out of his mind. It's actually quite interesting. I think that doing this passage right after the Advent series is really interesting because the Advent series was constantly what people were saying about Jesus before he was born. 
right? And all of the things said about Jesus before he was born were majestic and beautiful and um, glorifying Jesus, right? He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is King of the Jews. He is the Son of God. But it's actually quite interesting. In Jesus' own life, often the things that were said about him weren't quite so kind, right? And Jesus in his full, none of us likes to be talked bad about, right? Some of us like to act like we don't care what people think about us, but we all do. It's a lie. It's a myth. Some of us tell ourselves this as, as a myth, but we really do. And so Jesus in his own humanity had to have not liked when people were saying false things about him. And this very first one, he's out of his mind, is said by who? His family. Look at verse 20 and 21. He went home. The crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he's out of his mind. If you look down at 31, which is where Kenny will pick back up, it gives us a little bit more detail. It picks back up on that part of the scene. His mother and his brothers were standing outside. So we don't know if the mother and the brothers are all equally of the same opinion that he's out of his mind. But we know that his mother and his brothers are outside. The crowd is so great that they can't even eat inside. And for some reason they think he's out of his mind. We need to like go in like a SWAT team and remove him and get him out of there. It's the first. It, can't you imagine the dagger that would be to Jesus' heart? There's, we're going to see three daggers, three false statements of who Jesus is. The first one is he's out of his mind. Exactly why they think he's out of his mind is not in completely clear. Maybe it's uh, big brother Jesus is too big for his britches, right? He's kind of walking, or is it breeches? I never know if it's britches or breeches, but either one. He's, he's too big for either one, right? That the, the brothers are saying, we, Jesus has this crowd following him around. He's kind of thinking that he's, he's kind of more than he is, and we're, we're worried about him in that way. Or it could even be a more selfish claim, like Jesus has given our name a bad name, and we don't like it. We're going to try to stop him from this, right? That could be a selfish motivation. It could be a, a, the passage itself says he couldn't even eat. Maybe Jesus was being so poured out for the people. You get this sense of Jesus' ministry, right? That in, particularly by this time in Mark, the crowd has really grown. And Jesus is like a superstar when he shows up in this crowd that he can't even hardly move around. And in this case, it seems like there's so many people in the house he can't even eat. Maybe he's even like, well, we're worried about Jesus because he's not even eating well. He's not even able to travel. And we're going to seize him and remove him for his own good. We don't know which of those it is. But at some point, we know the one thing is they're saying something false about him. They believe that he's out of his mind. Very interesting. I'm not going to say anything more about that because it will pick back up at 31. And I think that, that 20 and 21 are actually setting up for what we get in 31. But for us, we certainly see it's the first dart that Jesus has. The second dart comes from the scribes in 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. That's a dagger. It's another lie, isn't it? By this time in Mark, the scribes and the Pharisees are obviously the bad guys, right? They're obviously the bad guys. Uh, look at, at Mark 3 um, is the first. In Mark 2, we're not sure if the Pharisees are bad guys or, or not, right? We kind of read into it that they were because we know the Pharisees are always bad guys. But if you started with Mark with fresh eyes, the first things the Pharisees are saying are not so bad. They're saying things like, who can forgive sins but God alone? And why does he eat with sinners, right? Those are not necessarily attacks on Jesus. But by the time Mark 3 comes out, there's no question they're the bad guys, right? Jesus, they bring this man on the Sabbath, 
Jesus asked the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath in verse 4 of chapter 3? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or kill it? But they were silent. This is the Pharisees. And he looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of hearts, and he said, stretch out your hand. Now Jesus has anger towards the Pharisees. They're hard-hearted. And not only that, verse 6 makes it clearer, the way Mark's telling us the story, they are Jesus' enemies. They went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. We've got bad guys now. My son's primary qualification for a movie is, does it have bad guys? They're going to show you a new movie. Does it have bad guys? Yes, okay, I'll watch it. But they're very suspicious of their daughter, of, their, of their, my daughters, their sisters. Their sisters pick movies. They don't have very good bad guys, right? They, why do I want to watch like High School Musical? There's no bad guys in that, right? Or they're not bad enough. So now we have, in our drama, we have bad guys. And now the bad guys are saying a horrible thing about Jesus. They're saying he is possessed. He casts out demons by Satan. Now, there's some question about what Belzebul exactly is, but it's, we can go really quickly. It's obviously understood by Mark and by Jesus to be Satan, right? They're talking about the chief of the demons. In fact, that's equated by saying he is possessed by Belzebul. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. The Pharisees are literally saying the supernatural acts that Jesus is accomplishing are accomplished by occultism, satanic um, powerful forces of demons, right? That's, that's what they're saying. It's actually quite interesting if you think about it because the Pharisees at least recognize that Jesus has power, right? They're not dismissing that he has power. They're recognizing this person is showing up. He's doing incredibly powerful things. And now we have to sort out where does this power come from? And essentially there's kind of two supernatural options, isn't there? Either it comes from God. So there, could Jesus's power come from God? And the scribes and the Pharisees say, no, it can't because he continues to break our traditions. Did you see him tell that man to stretch out his hand on the Sabbath? Did you see how he ate with sinners? He couldn't be from God. Therefore, he must be from Satan. Fascinating. Fascinating. And we see, even in Mark, what, we, what little that we get of Mark, right? Any single gospel, particularly Mark, is just given us snapshots, is given us an edited version of all of Jesus' life. The Gospel of John tells us this specifically, right? I'm just telling you some stories. If I try to write it all, libraries couldn't contain it. So even in the snapshots that we get of Mark alone, we get plenty of examples of Jesus healing unclean spirits. Go back to, to Mark 1. The, the very first supernatural healing we get in Mark 1 is of an unclean spirit. Mark 1, verse 21. I'm going to just read through this because I think it's worthwhile to get the context of Jesus casting demons out, um, Jesus rescuing people from this sort of possession. Mark 1, 21. He came to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. The unclean spirit convulsing and crying out the loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, who is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. 
and at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. There's a single instance of this supper of miraculous claim. Then in verse 32, we have a summary statement, right? Look at verse 32 in chapter 1. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So Jesus, we have an example of him one time doing this miraculous event. Now we have it, it's happening regularly. People are bringing to him, people who are sick. He's healing them, people who have demons. He's casting them out. We get another similar statement in chapter three. Starting verse 11, let's just read three, verse 11 and 12. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. You know what's really interesting already? What are the spirits, what are these evil spirits saying about Jesus? True things, right? So the Pharisees, they're lying about Jesus. And even Jesus' own family is being tempted right now to believe something false. But what are the spirits saying? The spirits are saying, I know who you are, Jesus. You're the Holy One of God. You're going to destroy us. The spirits, the demons are saying, you are the son of God. Isn't that incredibly interesting? That's what the demons are saying. Here's what the scribes and the Pharisees are saying. Oh, no, no, he's, he's possessed. He's casting out demons by satanic power. Even his own family saying what? He's out of his mind. Isn't it fascinating that in the passage so far, the demons are the ones that have the right theology about Jesus? That's interesting, isn't it? It's really interesting. Now, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek because they don't have good theology. Why not? Because they don't love Jesus. But they know they passed the quiz, wouldn't they? They understand things about Jesus. They recognize who Jesus is. In fact, that's one of the common themes. Is, I know who you are. I know who you are. The Pharisees are saying, we have no idea who you are. His family's saying, we're not sure who you are. But the demons are saying, I know who you are. You're the Holy One that comes from God. I think that's an interesting contrast set up into this passage, right? The lies that are coming from the humans and the truth that's coming from the demons. Demons are speaking true things about Jesus. It's a little bit of a sobering warning, isn't it? That knowledge is not enough. The Demons have a lot of knowledge right here. They know about Jesus, but we need more than knowledge. We need faith. We need love. We need obedience. That sometimes if we're banking on our mental data bank of knowledge, then we're not much different than the demons right here. We're going to pray that the Lord helps us not trust merely in our knowledge. It's interesting to see how Jesus defends himself against this charge, right? So this is the second dagger. The first dagger was he's out of his mind. The second dagger is he's, he's casting out demons by the prince of demons. And his initial defense we find in 23 through 27, and it's really just logic. Jesus is just saying, let me take the assumption that you've just made, and let's assume that to be true, and I'm going to show you how it logically does not follow, right? Essentially, he's saying what? Essentially, he's saying... I couldn't be casting out demons by satanic power because that would be a division within Satan's kingdom. And that doesn't make any sense, right? Why in the world would Satan cast out Satan, right? That's essentially all that he's saying, right? He's just saying it logically doesn't make sense. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. I think he's quoting Abraham Lincoln on that one. Thank you. Okay, I knew it. 
if I had run that one by my wife, she would have said, cut that one. Don't use that one. But it was just, I just had to. Anyway, okay. You see, he's just given a logical argument. Satan cannot be casting out Satan because that would be a division in Satan's house. And then the second part, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And then he indeed may plunder his home. If you push that kind of parable, Mark tells us they're parables, but if you push that parable just a little bit, who's the strong man? Satan. Who's the plunderer? Jesus. Very interesting, right? Jesus has gone into Satan's home, his kingdom, and he is beginning to plunder him. By doing what? By casting out demons. And why? Because Satan's already bound. It's a beautiful image, isn't it? Even before Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus' mere presence on the earth is binding Satan. Satan's power is already limited. Sometimes I'm afraid that some of us over-glorify Satan. Right? We kind of make him co-equal God. Um, but here we already see, even before Jesus' death and resurrection, Satan is bound, and Jesus is already plundering him. Jesus is already in his kingdom, robbing him blind, not to mention the death blow he's going to deal with him on the cross. Fantastic. The third dagger. So Jesus, the second dagger, he's, possessed, he's casting out demons through the power of Satan. The, the response is essentially, I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to defend myself with just logic. doesn't make any sense, guys. Do a little better job. How could that, right? In other words, there, there, there's, there's no reason to actually come to that conclusion. And the third dagger is very similar to the second one. You find it all the way at the end of the passage in verse 30. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. He has an unclean spirit. It's similar to the second dagger. In particular, it's exactly the same that says he's possessed by Beelzebul, this this unclean spirit. Um, But what's interesting, the way that Mark writes 28 through 30 is 28 and 29 are a response. Jesus says 28 and 29 because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. That's what the four is doing. Since they were saying he has an unclean spirit, Jesus says 28 and 29, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, as interested as we are in 29, I don't want us to miss the riches of 28 first. 28 is a beautiful gospel statement from the mouth of Jesus himself. Let's camp on 28, and then we'll go to 29, so that I think we can truly appreciate both. Because it's so tempting to go straight to 29, isn't it? And miss this riches of 28. Listen to 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemes they utter. That's a beautiful verse, isn't it? All sins will be forgiven. Whatever blasphemies they utter, that part would have challenged the Pharisees. The Pharisees had a belief that the Old Testament taught, in their opinion, with their human tradition, that blasphemy was one of those sins that you just could never get past. You couldn't be forgiven blasphemy. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, you don't understand the grace of God. Right? You don't understand that, yes, even blasphemy, even all blasphemies will be and can be forgiven. What's being said by Jesus? Well, first of all, sin is real. Sometimes we tend to think Jesus doesn't talk about sin. We like let Paul be the sin person and Jesus is kind of always telling happy stories and being kind and loving and gracious. But Jesus actually talks about sin quite a bit and he's certainly talking about sin here, isn't he? So sin is actually, we have to get sin before we can get the good news. We have to understand sin really well. Phil Watson, if you don't know him, he's sitting over here, is the best 
kids coach in America. The most highly sought after children's basketball and soccer coach in America is on the second row over here. In fact, he's so highly sought after that at the league that we play in, there's like 50 of us who want him to coach our sons. And because he's, he's just a superstar coach. And it's not just because he's a good guy, because he, he, he teaches them the Bible and he teaches them skills. And so when it comes to like draft day, uh, poor Phil has so many kids that want to be on his team, they can't all be on his team. And so this year they came to me and they said, your sons, we know you wanted your sons to play on Phil Watson's team, but they just can't play on his team. Too many people want Phil, and apparently my kids got cut for some reason. So, and they said, you're going to have to coach yourself. If you're going to have, it's either that or, you know, like a 13-year-old will coach them or something like that. So I said, okay, I will take the challenge and I will coach. And I've got myself a really good, last year my assistant coach was Dr. Rob Lister. I tried to do, I don't know if it's an upgrade or not. This year my assistant coach is Dr. Eric Taunas. I don't know if he's going to walk in your shoes well or not, Rob. But so we've got, you know, we've got way too many degrees that we need for our coaching staff. But so... But the bad news is, unbeknownst to me, Phil Watson changed the schedule. He's got a lot of power, and I only play one team twice. And the entire schedule, I only play one team twice. Guess whose team I have to play twice? Phil Watson's team twice. First game next Saturday. We should probably bring a report, huh? And then the very last game. So I'm just hoping that we get closer the second time around. Why am I talking about Phil Watson other than I want to? Phil Watson, I helped him coach soccer this last year. And uh, part of our league, it's a Christian league, is to do a little Bible time. And Phil said, I want you to lead the Bible time. He was going to handle the coaching. He actually ended up handing me other responsibilities like crying kids on the court became my responsibility too. Somehow, I don't know. But so I was Bible guy and crying kids guy. That became my job. Shut up other than that. Um, (laughs) Team morale. He said, here's what I want us to do. I want us to go over the gospel. But before we go over the gospel, because it's every practice for like 16 weeks, 14 weeks, every practice, we have a little bit, 10 minutes, five minutes of Bible time. So he said, I want us to hit sin hard first. I think I hit it harder than you actually thought I was going to. Because for about four or five weeks, there was no good news in our Bible time. All we did was look at another verse about what sin was. And we talked about how sin was, was breaking God's law. And it can be done by thought, word, and deed. And you can be sinning by omission and commission. And there's sin, there's a right, just payment for sin that comes uh, by God's holiness. And so we kept talking about sin and we kept talking about sin. Why do we do that? Because we have to prepare ourselves for the good news of the gospel by looking at sin. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Sin is real. That's the first thing he's built into this statement. Sin is real, but after that is what? Forgiveness is real. We're still mining 28 right now. Forgiveness is real. You really can be forgiven. And according to 28, how many sins can be forgiven? All sins will be forgiven. All sins will be forgiven. And all blasphemies. That's a remarkably beautiful passage, isn't it? All sins will be forgiven. All blasphemies will be forgiven. Why? Because Christ is that glorious. Because the gospel is that powerful of good news. Everything will be forgiven that you've done. And what do we do to receive this forgiveness? Well, in the context of Mark, it's quite clear, actually. When Jesus first comes in Mark 1, he says what? Repent and believe. How do I have all my sins and all my blasphemies forgiven? According to Jesus' own words in Mark 1, repent and believe. Later on in Mark 2, Jesus says what? I came for those who are sick. You have to know you need a physician. 
right? You're not going to repent if you don't think you need a physician. You're not going to repent if you think you're righteous. I came for sinners. So according to the language of Mark, what do we have to do to have all sins, all blasphemies forgiven? Well, basically, repent and believe, recognize that you're a sinner, recognize you need a doctor, and run to Jesus. That's what we have so far. So it's a beautiful statement, isn't it? It's incredibly interesting. And actually, I was looking forward at the, the catechism um, that we're studying. So in week 25, we're going to ask this exact question. So if you want to, I'm going to give you a little uh, a cheat sheet at 24 weeks from right now, what you'll be memorizing. Does Christ's death mean all our sins can be forgiven? It's an interesting question in light of our passage, isn't it? The answer is yes, because Christ's death on the cross fully paid the penalty for our sins. God graciously imputes Christ's righteousness to us as if it were our own and will remember our sins no more. That jives perfectly with verse 28, doesn't it? The hard part is, how does that and how does 28 line up with 29? But there's a reason I wanted to camp on 28 a little bit first. Because isn't it tempting to run straight to 29 and all of a sudden we end up spending 45 minutes talking about, well, the one sin that can't be forgiven. When it seems like in context there's this really beautiful statement, all sins and all blasphemies will be forgiven. And I don't think 29 is necessarily so much an exception, all but one. I think it's a warning. It's saying all of your sins will be forgiven but there might be some of you that won't have this one kind of sins forgiven for a certain reason, and that's what we're going to look at now. 29. Isn't it beautiful that to stop and celebrate the gospel first, right? <laughs> thank God. I got a text from Moses after the 8 o'clock service, and all it said was, thank God for forgiveness. Amen. Thank God for forgiveness. It really is real. So 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, are you like me and at least initially think there's a contradiction here between 28 and 29, right? Isn't it tempting at least to think, wait, wait, wait. Mark, Jesus, Mark, you have Jesus saying in 28, all sins will be forgiven and all blasphemies. And then 29, you just kind of seem to go back on your word, right? Whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit, that one cannot be forgiven, if you do that, you're guilty of a sin that's eternal in nature. It can never be forgiven. And I don't think there's a contradiction here. There might be a bit of a biblical tension. And I think the more carefully we read our Bibles, the more times we, we feel some tension in places. But we have to kind of dig deeper. And I think understanding what this means will actually help us see. This is not a contradiction at all. It actually, there's a way, even in the context of Mark itself, to understand what's being said here. In the context, it's actually quite easy what blasphemy in the Holy Spirit is, right? And when you pull the verse out of context, that's where it gets tricky. But in the context of Mark itself, what are these scribes doing that would make them guilty of this kind of a sin? Well, they're looking at Jesus' works, motivated, that are accomplished through the Holy Spirit, and they're saying those works that the Holy Spirit are accomplishing are not being accomplished by the Holy Spirit. They're actually being accomplished by Satan, Right? So that's, in the context of the passage, it's quite easy to know what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's to look at something that the Holy Spirit is doing and call it satanic. Particularly the works of Jesus. The question gets trickier though, isn't it? Whenever we start to say, okay, but when we kind of pull out from that, how do we, how do we just 
we don't want to just limit ourselves. Surely that's a teaching that can remain for us here and now, right? Like, we're not going to see Jesus teaching down the street and be tempted to walk over and say, oh, that's not God, that's Satan, right? We, we are in a different day now. So what, how do we pull this out for us? And the way that we need to best understand this is it's a sort of settled conviction against the things that the Spirit is doing, right? So what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? I think even the best way to think is, okay, what can it not be? Let's think of biblical examples of what it cannot be to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, okay? It can't be heinous, horrible sins, right? Because we see people in the Bible commit horrible sins and be forgiven, like David. So it can't be that. Okay, it can't be that. It can't merely be doubting Jesus. We see that happen in the Bible. Thomas doubts Jesus. In fact, Matthew at the end talks about multiple disciples apparently doubting Jesus, but they're all restored. So it can't just be that, right? It can't even be looking at things that God is doing through the Holy Spirit, calling them evil to the point that you're even willing to murder someone because that's what Saul does before he's Paul, right? Saul says, these miraculous things, these are evil. These are not good. I need to, out of my goodness, kill Christians and have them stop doing this. And so we see, oh, it can't even be that. It can't be even being a believer and rejecting and denying Jesus. Who did that? Peter, and he's restored. So whatever this is, we just have four biblical categories of what it can't be. You're like, well, you could go all day with what it isn't. What is it? Well, okay, yeah, we're trying to get there. It must be something very similar. Looking at something the Spirit is accomplishing and rejecting it or denying it. Here's a couple of uh, summary statements that I took from things that I read. I just kind of collapsed a, uh, some really smart people together to get kind of a, a sort of working definition of what this is. It's a kind of settled rejection of the work of the Spirit. Right? And that settled is the important part here. A conscious, intentional, deliberate, persistent rejection of the work of the Spirit. A totality of your response of the Holy Spirit, right? If you take all of your responses to the Spirit and you kind of put it in a totality, then your total response to the Spirit is, no, I reject you, right? Permanent rejection. I like this last one. I can't remember where I picked this up. A general attitude of rejection, right? There are certain things in our life that we just have fostered a general attitude about rejecting, Right? And some of them may be good things that biblically we need to reject. Some of them may just be silly little things. But if you offer me a straw for my drink, for example, I'll just reject that because I don't like straws. So I have an attitude of rejection. It's not a big deal. I just, I just don't use straws. And so if you ask me, do you want a straw? I don't consider it anymore. It's like, no, I have a general attitude of rejection. No, I don't, I don't use straws. That's the kind of settled, that's, that's a little trite, but that's the kind of settled. If you have a settled attitude of rejection against the Holy Spirit like that, that's where you're getting close to committing this sin that cannot be forgiven, right? I think we see something like this in Acts 7 when Stephen's being stoned. Stephen is looking at the people and he's saying, you stiff-necked people, stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and hardened ears, you always reject the Holy Spirit, You see that? That attitude of rejection, a consistent, deliberate, persistent response of rejection. I reject the Holy Spirit consistently, all the time. These are the people that Jesus and Stephen, who inspired by the Spirit, are looking at saying, either you're already there or you're precariously close. Now, this is particularly interesting, right? Because Saul, we think, might have been there, right? 
So Saul was one of them that was there, but he obviously wasn't yet, had not yet resisted the Holy Spirit to the point that he was beyond hope. And I think that's an interesting point for us. So let's think about others for right now. Stephen and Jesus are speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I don't think we can look at our friends and and point out who has committed this sin and who has not. Does that make sense? Like, we don't know where they're at. We might have seen a consistent, you may have family members you've been praying for, that you've seen a consistent, settled opinion of a rejection of the Holy Spirit, but they could repent tomorrow and prove it wrong, right? So that's, I think our job is to not guess who's committed this and who's not. Our job is, from our limited perspective, to always preach repentance and believe. Always say, oh, but you can do it now. I Is the passage actually saying people can get to the point that the Spirit no longer works for them, works in them? Yes. And I think the the secret of that, the hint of that is, why is it about the Holy Spirit that's so interesting, right? Why is it rejection and blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that gets highlighted rather than just God the Father or God the Son? I think Matthew actually adds to this and makes it really interesting. This is the parallel passage in Matthew. Jesus is saying the same thing, but we get a little different, a little extra here. Uh, Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Nothing new now. Nothing new there yet. We'll get to the underlying part. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, like Peter, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will will not be forgiven. Why the Holy Spirit? Why this kind of elevated role for the Holy Spirit over Jesus? It's the passage seems to be saying you can blaspheme Jesus and you can be forgiven. The mediator, right? The one who's giving us the righteousness, the one who went to the cross. You can blaspheme him and you can receive repentance, but if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, can't do it. Right? That seems to be what's being said. I think part of what's happening here, I think the way to help fully understand this is in Jesus. Jesus says in John 16 that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to do what? Convict us of our sin. That's the role. That's one of the many things the Holy Spirit does. The Spirit convicts you of your sin. And I think the point is if you blaspheme the Father, you still have hope. It's a big deal, but you still have hope. Why? Because the Holy Spirit could come and bring you conviction. The Holy Spirit could come and say, repent, believe. You need a doctor. You have blasphemed the Father. You can blaspheme the Son, and what will happen? The Holy Spirit can come to you and say, repent, believe. You have sinned. You need to repent. You need, you have, you need a doctor. But if I, if I habitually, consistently, persistently say, no, Holy Spirit, no, I'm going to speak against you, then at some point the passage is saying, I could go so far that I could never come back. That seems to be what the passage is saying, right? It's a habitual consistent at some point. Now, why is this sin not able to be forgiven? Not because Jesus' death on the cross wasn't good enough, but according to Jesus' own words, to receive the forgiveness, we need to repent and believe. And if I'm giving a stiff arm to the Holy Spirit consistently, I can't repent, right? I will not repent. I am not capable of repenting. Why? Because the agent, of which job is one of them to bring repentance in my heart, I'm saying, no, I'm not letting you in the door. I don't want the repentance. That's, I think, why the passage is teaching. I think that's what's going on is the reason that this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is highlighted like it is is because you are limiting the one person of the Godhead Trinity whose job is to bring you the repentance which is required. If the Holy Spirit's not at work with you, you will be the one that says, I don't need a physician. I'm okay. I'm righteous. I'm not a sinner, right? And I'm keeping the Spirit at bay so that I'm not able to see that. 
There's a little pastoral note here, isn't there? Sin is really serious, right? Sin sears our souls. Sin does nerve damage, permanent nerve damage when we sin. And when we habitually walk in patterns of sin, what are we doing? We're habitually, at least in that one little area of our life, we're habitually saying, no, Holy Spirit, no, right? We're saying, no, Holy Spirit, no. And I do think that it's possible, right, that we continue to habitually say, no, Holy Spirit, and all of a sudden we find other areas of our life in which we're denying the Spirit. And ultimately, potentially, possibly, we could get to where the Holy Spirit, we are rejecting Him across all fronts. I've had conversations with people in this church who were considering some act that was completely outside of the bounds of Scripture. And I remember saying to them, if you deliberately, willfully choose to do something you know in Scripture tells you not to do, I could see it causing you to start walking down a path where we see this only expand. Right? That's because sin is a big deal. Sin causes nerve damage to the point that we could find ourselves in a similar situation. Now the last part of this is what do we... What do we think if we actually have committed it ourselves as Christians, right? Can a Christian do this? And there may even be some of you who struggle with that, who wonder, man, I'm afraid that when I was 23, I actually blasted the Spirit. And does that mean I have no hope? And so the first part we have to say to that is already, well, if it's not a settled totality of your response to the Spirit, it doesn't fit. But I actually think that there's something better to be said, which we'll say in just a, in a, in a little while. Um, first of all, this is not a new experience. If you have that fear, you're not, you're not alone. I talk to most of my colleagues. I teach at Biola Theology, and I talk to a lot of my theology colleagues, and, and about half of them have had students in their office that have feared that they've committed this sin, right? I, I, I don't think I can go to heaven because I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm beyond hope. And um, historically, John Bunyan um, wrote this book that was uh, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. I don't have my nice version because it's in your office, but I have this one instead. Um, I tried to go look for it in your office, but your office is a mess like always. Um, <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't have said that. So. Um, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. John Bunyan is concerned that he's created this sin. It's actually really sad to read the point in which he felt like he did this. One morning as I lay in my bed, I was, as at other times, most fiercely assaulted with this temptation to sell and part with Christ. The wicked suggestion running through my mind, sell him, sell him, sell him, as fast as a man could speak. Against this, in my mind, as at other times, I answered, no, no, not for thousands, not for thousands, not for thousands, at least 20 times altogether. At last, after much striving, and until I was almost out of breath, I felt this thought go through my heart, as if it was, it was out of his control almost, right? Let him go if he will. I thought also that I felt my heart freely consent to this, Oh, the diligence of Satan. Oh, the desperate, the desperateness of man's heart. And John Bunyan, after that moment, had two years in which he was thoroughly convinced he had blasphemed the Holy Spirit and had no hope for salvation. It's not a fun two years, huh? And he chronicles how in the midst of some of those years, there'd be every now and then he'd get some hope, but only to the next day to be returned. And he would just remind himself, no, I've sold Jesus. I've sold Jesus. And of course, the book doesn't end there, praise the Lord right? The Lord does bring him back. This is so beautiful. I'd been in this condition for some time. I was sitting by the fire, and I suddenly felt this word sound in my heart, I must go to Jesus. I love the beautiful simplicity of that, right? 
Theologian John Bunyan actually is talking at this point like a children's pastor. What do you need to do after two years? I need to go to Jesus. And what does he do with that? He goes to God's word. And from Hebrews 12, he's reading in God's word. And God uses Hebrews 12 to, to silence these rests, these, these doubts forever, right? It was a blessed scripture to me for many days after this. Primarily, I think he cites the whole passage, but it says that, he, that um, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the, whole, of the living God, and there you see God, the judge of all, the spirits of the just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than of all of Abel, right? And then he goes back. Now, he's quoting scripture. Now, he's not quoting scripture anymore. This is Bunyan. Through this sentence, the Lord had led me over and over, first to this word and then to that, and then showed me wonderful glory of every one of them. These words have often since that time been a great refreshment to my spirit. Two years of being convinced that he had committed this unpardonable sin, and what does God use to bring him out of that despair? Run to Jesus and God's word. So if you, if you struggle with that, run to Jesus. Trust God's word. Listen to God's word and let God's word tell you. The fact of the matter is, I love this quote, if you're worried about committing this sin, the very fact that you're worried about it proves that the Spirit's at work in your heart and proves that you have not committed it. Right? That's the beauty of it. It makes professors' offices really fun places to, to, to work because a student comes in and says, I really think I've committed uh, the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Are you worried about it? Yeah. Okay, you haven't, right? And it's not happened. Why? Because only the Spirit would lead you to think that that's a problem. So that's evidence in your life that the Holy Spirit is at work. Because to reject and to blaspheme the Holy Spirit means you'll never have that thought. You will always just say no. You will never say, I fear that this has happened. So do we carry away at the end of the day out of this beautiful passage? First of all, let's carry away the gospel from 28. All sins. If you repent of your sin, it will be forgiven you. If you repent of your blaspheme, it will be forgiven you. What a beautiful, marvelous promise. What else? Sin is really serious, though. Sin does nerve damage. If we continue to pursue, pursue paths of sin, we will get nerve damage. And who knows where that could lead? So take our sin very seriously. But ultimately, let's follow the words of Bunyan and run to Jesus. Go to Jesus and use his word so that we can receive an experience of this grace so it's not mere mental knowledge only. So maybe the Holy Spirit's at work convicting you right now of areas in your life which you're saying, no spirit, no spirit, no. And if that's the happening, I'm about to pray and we'll ask some grace group leaders to come up on the front. They'll be wearing tags. They can pray for you either during the service or after the service. They'll stick around. Um, or maybe you just want to pray at your seat or maybe you want to talk to me and pray or Walt after the service or any of the other elders. Um, so let me pray for us that the Spirit would be at work during this time and thanking God for this good word. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. We thank you how you packed the gospel into this passage. That all sins, if repented of, will be forgiven. So God, we pray that you will give us that gift of repentance through the Spirit. That in those areas of our life in which we are trying to keep the Spirit out, that you will allow him to penetrate and convict us of our sins, God, so that we can stop saying no to the Spirit and we can instead begin to run to Jesus. Do that work in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.